the, the thing about technology is that it's just an accelerant. Like when you think mm -hmm. about, when you think about the purpose of technology, it, it's really, it is a tool and it's to help us do work. It's to help us accomplish work, whether it's a, a very simple tool like a wheel or a ramp or a pulley, you know, simple machines that third graders learn about in science class. That's tech, that's real technology mm -hmm. that once upon a time completely changed the game in terms of uh, construction and transport mm -hmm. and so on. We don't think of it as technology much anymore, but uh, you go back in time, you know, to, to bronze age or pre bronze age, very simple things were, were high tech at the time. This episode of the smart athlete podcast is brought to you by Solpre. If you're active at all, whether you're running or simply out walking for the day, you've probably experienced one of the number one problems that active people have, and that's chafing. Solpre's all-new, all-natural anti-chafe balm solves that problem while feeding your skin the vital nutrients it needs to be healthy. If you'd like to stop chafing once and for all and treat your body right, Go to Solpri.com to check out the anti-chafe bomb today. And that's S-O-L-P-R-I.com. Welcome to the Smart Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Funk. My guest today has his master's in computer science, where he originally was in the Air Force Academy. He was a lieutenant. That's where he kind of started his early career in computer science. He's gone on to be the author, I think now in the third edition, hopefully he'll correct me here in a, in a minute, the third edition of Mining the Social Web. Uh, he's also the founder of two software as a service companies, Throwdowns and Strongest AI. Welcome to the show, Matthew Russell. Hey, glad to be here. This is cool. Matthew, did I get that correct? It is third edition of the book right now? Yeah, it's in the third edition. It sure is. So the, the first thing I have to ask, and it's just something, um, it's that skeptical mind from college. You pro probably had similar thoughts when you were there. When, when new editions of books come out, it's, I think it's particularly um, a culprit in textbooks because uh, I feel like that's a racket. Uh, your book is not nearly as pricey as a textbook. What are you actually doing when you're coming out with you know, subsequent editions? You know, what, what's the purpose of making those updates? Yeah, it's a great question. So, um you know, different authors are, are, and publishers are probably going to give you slightly different answers. So for me, uh, with Mining the Social Web, the way the book came about was that, so if you go to pre-IPO for Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, right? The, mm -hmm. the social web was just this, this new construct. It, it wasn't even obvious that uh, it was really going to catch on maybe to a lot of people at the time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like uh, call it the two two thousand six ish time frame or so, give or take. Um, you know, I started to look at it closely and and thought, okay, that th there really is something big here. And uh, my background being in computer science, data analytics, machine learning, I was very interested in the data more so than the user experience or mm -hmm. you know the current incarnation of the product. And so I wanted to write a book that. Uh, taught people how to get access to that data, how to uh, really wrap their arms around it, make sense of it, and then start to solve problems with it uh, in a color by number kind of way. Mm -hmm. So version one of the book uh, 
sort of took a snapshot of the social web as it existed around the time it published, uh, took the easiest and best to use technology uh, to help people make sense of the data. And uh, it, I, I'd written some books before this, so I had a little bit of practice in terms of uh, publishing a, you know, large written work. But the book itself, um, you know, it's a little bit messy. Uh, it, it, there, there was just a lot to cover and a lot to, to sort of put together, but it turned out pretty good. The second edition for me was a complete rewrite because the second edition for me was the opportunity to write the book that I wished that I would have written the first time around. Okay. So, so I wanted this second edition to be you could cherry pick any chapter and it told you a great story. You could read it from cover to cover and it was a nice cohesive story with, you know, a nice crescendo and increasing complexity as you built one chapter on another. And uh, of course we refreshed the, the tech that you could use to get your arms around the data and so forth. Um, that was a pretty big success. Honestly, the second edition, I treated it as a product. So I, I sort of looked at it as an entrepreneur and said, okay, how do I think of this as a living, breathing product? How do I engage my audience? How do I acquire, you know, readers? Um, I didn't just throw it over to the publisher and, and expect uh, amazing things to happen. You know, I really hustled in the, the marketing side of the book and that worked out pretty well. And so with the third edition, um, didn't really rewrite the book, but we did take sort of the same approach. We said, what's changed with the social web? Uh, what do we need to do to refresh it? Uh, so we updated some of the technology. We added a, a chapter on Instagram, you know, which had become a big thing since the second edition had published. And uh, just, yeah, updated the tool chain, uh, make it a little more accessible based on things we'd learned. And uh, brought on a co-author, you know, really, really great guy who, um, you know, was able to do a lot of uh, the work with me and, uh, you know, he, he was, he was just a blessing to have involved because uh, it was a lot of work to, it's a lot of work to write a book, but it's, it's mm -hmm. a lot of work to, to refresh it and, and really do it the right way. It wasn't just errata uh, fixes or something like that. There's considerable right. work involved. I, I can't recall off the top of my head, whether it was a, a, a blog post that you had written or your co-author. Um, but I do remember mention of the difficulty in putting together a book, because publishing schedules are uh, so much longer and take so much more time compared to the speed of software development and deployment. So, you know, how do you match that? How do you, you know, how do you keep up with the constant changes? Obviously, some of the minutia is going to get lost as, you know, we make minor updates to the platforms, the various platforms you talk about. Um, is there any way to, do you take broad strokes and say, this is kind of what you're looking for, regardless of whatever interface or, or, um, you know, setup you have at the time? Yeah, I think, I think like the, the phrase that comes to mind as you're, you're talking about this is just the publisher's tool chain. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a lot of ways you can go about writing a book. Uh, you, you could write it all in TXT files you could use you know, Microsoft Word, you, you could use uh, doc book editors. There's a lot of different standards and a lot of different tools that can um, 
make the job easier or harder. And some of those tools depend on your preferences and, and mm -hmm. just the way you like to work, what you're used to, what's efficient for you uh, based on your skills and experience. So the publisher that I've written all of my books with as a partner uh, is O'Reilly Media. So pretty, pretty innovative uh, organization. You know, Tim O'Reilly's sort of known as a, a very forward thinker, uh, you know, very future oriented. Uh, and, he's, and he's right about a lot of the things that he predicts. And so even though publishing uh, is sort of traditionally looked at as a little bit of a sleepy industry, you know, I think there's a lot of innovation uh, within O'Reilly, and, and I've seen some of that firsthand. So um, the tool chain that, uh, that was used um, across all the books that I wrote, you know, I saw that evolve and uh, get a little more efficient along the way, because on some level, you just have to realize uh, you really are just building a product. I mean, a book is a product, mm -hmm. and like any product, if you have better tools for the job, there is efficiency to be gained. You do have to learn how to use the tools um, or they won't be as efficient for you. But usually that upfront uh, learning curve is, is going to be worth conquering because it will pay for itself. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, you know, so for me coming from a technology background, I, I took a really, uh, really close look at automation and just all of the ways that I could streamline uh, the process. So for me, it was not a, an authoring process in Microsoft Word or some type of point and click editor. You know, I was working more with um, uh, like abbreviated text formats that I could write some scripts and uh, move code examples in and out of the prose, mm -hmm. run automated tests on my code examples, um, all of those things that would be very difficult to do uh, with a more traditional tool chain. So thinking about the, the book in particular, um, for me, the, the broad question is why should we mine the social web? And this is obviously two different questions. Should we mine the social web? You know what I mean? So the ethics of it, and then also in practice, what, you know, what, what's the purpose? What do we get out of it? Yeah, so there's there's a joke, um, you know, uh, about the internet. You know, it, it was just this idea that, um, you know, how how could the government convince everybody to put all of their personal information out in the open and make it very easy uh, to to surveil, you know, every activity, mm -hmm. every minute of every day? And uh, what do you know? They came up with this idea, you know, through DARPA, you know, for the World Wide Web, right? So. Right. Uh, it's a bit of a joke, but you think about the reality of that. I mean, the data's out there, somebody's mining it, and you can either be aware and informed and familiar with the possibilities uh, for, uh, whether it's for curiosity's sake or whether it's uh, because you want to use that to make certain privacy decisions for your own life, uh, or maybe you do have a business model that just fundamentally could depend on it. What if you could find lots of data exhaust all over the internet that people are readily publishing about themselves, find a way to aggregate it and wring out some really uh, valuable information. Maybe that's for profit. Maybe that's for social good. Maybe that's for, you know, combinations thereof. There's, there's always going to be someone that's going to do that for, you know, nefarious purposes or, or selfish purposes. 
as well. It's just the nature of the beast. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would just say it, it's, it's, it's one of those things. Um, if you are a consumer of social media, you, if you are a participant, if your children or family members or anyone you care about is a participant, um, I, I think there's just an intellectual curiosity of well, what's, what's really out there and what's really possible to do with it as a starting point. And then um, beyond that, yeah, there, when money flow gets involved, then all sorts of, of other motives can, can also become involved and usually do. And the stakes get high sometimes with with all of that. Sometimes I kind of think about it like, I mean, it's all a tool, right? Where it's, I mean, like, let's take a hammer, for example. And this is a, a little bit obtuse example. But, I mean, a hammer is a tool. So I, I can use it to hammer and nails, which is its intended purpose. I can also bludgeon somebody with it. It's It's not necessarily the hammer's intention to to bludgeon somebody but it can be used that way so i think like when i have this conversation with people it's kind of as you mentioned there's always somebody that's probably going to have less than honorable intentions with a tool but in this may be simply the naive, naive optimist that i am i feel like generally speaking that's not the large case use. I feel like the majority of people, vast majority really, are using tools to build and create something positive to try to you know, impact people in some form or another. Yeah, yeah, so the, the thing about technology is that it's just an accelerant. Like when you think mm-hmm. about when you think about the purpose of technology, it, it's really, it is a tool and it's to help us do work, it's to help us accomplish work, whether it's a, a very simple tool like a wheel or a ramp or a pulley, you know, simple machines that third graders learn about in science class. That's tech, that's real technology mm-hmm. that once upon a time completely changed the game in terms of uh, construction and transport mm-hmm. and so on. We don't think of it as technology much anymore. But uh, you go back in time, you know, to, to Bronze Age or pre-Bronze Age, very simple things were, were high-tech at the time. But any very simple thing can, yeah, you can use it for any purpose, you know. So I, I have a very classical view of, of humanity. I sort of look at humans as humans haven't changed very much in a very mm-hmm. long time. Technology has, you know, that, that's kind of the point. And so what we are able to do today with technology is is just sort of the inevitable outcome of of who we are as humans and um you know our our motives and our actions when it becomes easier uh, and more accessible to to do all of all of those things you know whether it's travel from point a to point b well at some point you had to walk or run and then eventually you could ride a horse and eventually you could uh you know maybe get in um a steam engine and ride up and down the river and, you know, eventually an automobile and eventually a rocket or a plane and and so on. Mm. Like that's pretty profound really, because once upon a time, the theoretical limit of where you could travel to from point A to point B, it it was just like a fixed possibility. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a very different number today than, 
a hundred years ago, right? Right. Uh, completely different. And and then you just think, well, what are the what, what's the impact of that? What happens when that becomes economical and accessible, and nearly anyone can do it? Um, to me, that's that's just an example of of technology. Like transportation's the easy one mm-hmm. uh, that just kind of intuitively anyone can grok that. But yeah, whether it's the hammer or the computer or um, you know, a, a fitness app, you know, what, whatever it is, it's, uh, it's just, it's just a way to do work. You know, I think technology automates work or augments work. So in automation, um, so you think of AI in general and, and all that we hear about that, you know, there's, there's at least two really clear use cases broad, you know, you can automate work, which, humans shouldn't do in the first place because Mm -hmm. maybe a machine really can do it better with more consistency, uh, you know, more accuracy or there's augmentation. So there's a unit of work. You really do want a human to do it at least for the time being, but technology can accelerate or scale that human talent uh, to a multiple, maybe 10 or 100 times more work by Mm -hmm. a subject matter export or a a well-trained uh, technician of some kind can get something done. Um, so two, two different use cases, you know, for as we start to go from analog to digital right. and thinking about technology. The augmentation makes you think about, I, I don't know if this is a literal example. I think so, but it's talking about like improving the uh, efficiency or the efficacy of a single worker. And I think the example I saw or I recall was, uh, talking about law offices. And so, you, you know, you have the lawyer in charge and then they used to have a number of people under them that would have to be going through texts to find all of these different things. Well, with digitization of all of this information and the, you know, ability to perform a Boolean search to say, hey, this is what I want to find, you eliminate all that kind of uh, redundancy or human labor needed to find all these specific cases and you can get to it you know much much faster than you would have previously so in both cases it seems like you're reducing uh, human labor now I don't know that I have a hard stance on this at, at this point so I'm, I'm curious uh, since you know this is kind of where you exist um, in, in software development I'll say uh, for lack of a better broad term, but uh, I kind of like your thoughts on is it actually doom and gloom when we're replacing people for, you know, using software or machines to automate or augment jobs, or is it a matter of we're simply shifting where human labor is needed? Yeah. So I, I think what we're seeing is, you know, I think this pattern has been in place uh, for, for a very long time. And the, so, so, so to approach the question, as we think about the world, uh, like I think our human brains are, are really good at linear predictions. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if, if it took some unit of time to do something we can sort of do that multiple on the mental math and, and, and sort of imagine, well, yeah, if it took a year for something to happen, then yeah, in two years, well, here's probably, you know, where we could be with the possibility. 
but the thing about technology is that it's not a linear problem. Like there, right. there's, there's sort of a, a nonlinear acceleration. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we're very good, like just as humans, at predicting nonlinear curves. Right. And so when we, you know, when we think about the world today and the digitization of so many things, it, it's a little bit harder to grok, you know, what, what's going to happen, uh, you know, a year from now it's very tough to look back at the progress in the previous 12 months and make a good prediction about the next 12 months. Mm -hmm. But I do think if you look back, you, you do see that curve. Mm -hmm. And so to, to start to approach the question a little bit, I don't really think what's happening with, with AI personally is uh, fundamentally different with all of the hysteria that sometimes comes along with it, especially from some of the leaders in the space that uh, in some way have a lot of incentives for, for their perspective to become true uh, because of investments, because of money flow, because of uh, what they want, want to be true. Mm -hmm. um, but, I, but I do think that there's, it, it, it's just a tool that can do a job uh, there, there are, you know, certain types of precautions with any technology that we should take. AI is, is just another example of that as well. So if you go into, um, you know, a factory, you're, maybe you've got to put on a hard hat and you don't stick your finger in the conveyor belt, right? It's a safety precaution. Mm -hmm. If you go in the nuclear power plant, it's maybe a little more high tech than a factory, well, you might have to put on a special, you know, radiation shield of some kind and, and not get within some proximity of the reactor. Well, with AI, you know, I think what, what kind of scares people is that it doesn't have that same kind of physicality mm -hmm. in the abstract. And there's a lot of sci-fi and a lot of sci-fi becomes true sometimes, at least the, the survivorship bias of the good sci-fi right. makes you think that way. And then you sort of let your imagination uh, go to wherever you want it to go uh, or wherever it naturally goes. Like I do understand the, the fear of, uh, you know, technology gone wrong and, and what's possible. But as a, as a practitioner in the space, uh, I don't lose any sleep over it myself. Like mm -hmm. I have a, a very tough time. Um, worrying about Terminator scenarios, um, that, that sort of thing. I, right. I'm not saying that's completely out of the realm of possibility because I don't, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility given enough time, given enough money. But in, in this decade, um, you know, I, I'm not worried about the kinds of things that Ray Kurzweil uh, might, might lead people to believe they should be worried about. It, it seems like, Sometimes, so I, I guess I'll say from a personal standpoint, I, I try to divorce myself a little bit from news and even social media recently um, because I think if you look, I go back to look at the money and what, it, you know, the, the saying, if it, if it bleeds, it leads, right? Like that's what grabs our attention. So if you think about like the economic implications of if, you know, news outlets and, and those kind of media agencies were only trying to give a 
real, more balanced perspective of the reality of the situation, well, that's not interesting. It doesn't catch our attention. But, you know, and Arnold Schwarzenegger Terminator coming down the street to get us because Matthew's AI went rogue. Well, now I'm paying attention. So it's, it's like, and to couple that with now, like I work in the digital space because I mean, e-commerce, eyeballs are the new currency. There's a lot of people that refer to it as that. So it's like, if we can keep your attention, that's how we make money. So I, yeah. sometimes I think about it with that and how it kind of preys on, I'll say humans in a general sense, our tendency to focus on the negative instead of trying to look at the realism of the situation. Yeah. Well, well you think about what sells and, and there's this adage, um, you know, you, you can sell against, uh, pain, pleasure, or peace of mind. Right. You know, those are three really broad categories. Um, and, and on some level, you, you, you think about all of the marketing messages you ever see, and um, they're, they're just appealing you know, on, on that emotional level, one, mm -hmm. whether it's very direct or very indirect, uh, to, to one or more of those motives. And uh, there, there's no doubt that if, if there's something that might scare you and affect your peace of mind, uh, you know, that won't sit well with you. And by definition, um, it's going to take up some space in your brain for a while and you're going to, to come back to it. Or if there's something that is causing you pain today, you know, same, same idea. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in B2C, of course, you know, pleasure, well, that's, that's what everybody wants to buy, right? We don't buy what we need. We buy what we want. And right. most of the time we want pleasure. Yeah, we buy, and that's the thing. That's the other thing. This is a side note, but um, and you, because you're an entrepreneur, you know this. But for you, the listener, we we like to pretend that we buy things for rational reasons, but we buy them for emotional reasons, and we rationalize after the fact. And that's where like copywriting, which is all that the sales text you read and those kind of things come into play. And, and as Matthew mentioned, it's appealing to those things. Other, you know. You know, think about, um, as a concrete example, like security systems, the text that you're going to read is trying to scare you a little bit because when you're scared, you're going to be more likely to purchase that security system because it's, it's going to give you the feeling of being secure and not being afraid anymore. So there is a, there's both a, and I've mentioned this other, other times on the, on the podcast, but there are a light side and a dark side, so to speak of sales and kind of appealing to those things in spaces that are even necessary like security or as you mentioned in ai where certain people might have motives to scare you versus you know giving the reality of the situation yeah my most of my professional background has has been in the b2b space mm -hmm. you know where you know, you have a, a clear buyer and there's a real business decision and there's a real problem with real pain and a real mm -hmm. solution, right? You know, sort of a very rational needs-based right. uh, cost-benefit analysis. But yeah, in the B2C space, uh, totally emotional in nature and yeah. very much like, do I, do I want it? And, and the rationalization really does come after. Yeah, it seems like 
in B2B, you're obviously, so business to business for the listener, if you don't know what that means, and B2C is business to consumer, so or direct to consumer, I might also say that. Um, with B2B, it's, it's, you know, like if you're selling me software for my business, I'm cons- all I'm concerned with, generally speaking, is will this save me time and will this produce more money than it costs me to pay for it? You know, so it's like, there's obviously a pain there. I want my time back. I want more money, but it's not a matter of you've got to scare me. It's just, <laughs> do, do the numbers work? Okay, let's do it. It, it doesn't, it doesn't involve all the extra coaxing and convincing that sometimes um, consumer goods need. Mm-hmm. So, um, but thinking about that, you are kind of now, well, you're a little bit in, b2b but in some ways i would say you're kind of in this hybrid of b2b b2c now with um throwdowns and strongest ai um so so how do you get so i guess take me back a little bit you're in the air force when do you get into crossfit um i have to give you a hard time why did you leave triathlon i mean i mean what what else do you need you got three sports um but but how do you get to where you are now uh, in that space, I'm assuming that's probably uh, connected to getting into these software as a service companies. Yeah, so after uh, some time in the military, uh, I started to work as a computer scientist in the private sector in uh, you know data and analytics oriented roles and uh, got involved in an early stage software company building some pretty cutting edge technology uh, at the time for understanding natural language uh, so how do you take a machine and build models to to understand the text, not just to keyword search it and find any document with a certain word or a near match, mm-hmm. but but conceptually something a lot closer to like sentiment analysis or um, a contextual understanding of you know are you are you looking for uh, Apple the fruit or Apple the company was Apple the company referenced in a favorable or non favorable way. How could that, you know, then be used maybe to predict certain market trends or uh, do product research, consumer reviews, that kind of, you, you sort of see where right. a machine understanding language is a pretty powerful thing because mm-hmm. uh, you, you either pay humans to read those documents and synthesize them in their own brains and, and do the analysis, make decisions, uh, or you automate it, but there's a level at which no group of humans could ever read everything in a certain unit of time right. and produce the analysis. It's, it's physically impossible. If every, if all 8 billion people in the world right now were able to read, say, every email that goes in and out of an investment bank and coordinate and come up with the analysis and the summary uh, like that's an impossible problem. Like you, no, no amount of, of people can really solve it. There's just too much overhead and coordination. Mm-hmm. That's perfect for a machine. Mm-hmm. It's perfect for a machine to do 99.99% of that work and then have some human experts understand it. So those were the kinds of problems uh, we, we started to work on early. Um, and, you know, now a lot of that technology is uh, pretty readily available in the open source world. And uh, I don't know if I'd call it a commodity, but, but maybe borderline commodity to some extent now mm-hmm. uh, with cloud services, you know, that the companies like Google and Amazon offer. Um, 
So spent a little time uh, getting to be involved in early stage technology companies. Um, my, my background professionally is technology, obviously, but, but right. fitness was always the hobby. Um, fitness was, you know, going back to when I was even a teenager, you know, it was, it, it was always, you know, my, uh, the way I like to spend my time, you know, uh, and uh, it was both just the, the pleasure of it, uh, you know, feeling good uh, while I'm training, but also, um, you know, there was something about just how can I maximize my own human potential and then being pretty analytically minded, well, how do I measure that? And how do, mm -hmm. I, how do I know that, that I'm really uh, running the best plan here? Like, mm -hmm. what, what would it take for me to achieve a certain goal? Uh, what kind of time horizon? And so on. And so I'd never quite figured out how to put technology and fitness together in a way that it, it could just make sense uh, as a business, you know, I, I just never quite been able to do it, but I, I gradually found a way to do it. Um, and a lot of it was, was because once I was involved in, um, you know, triathlon and CrossFit, and I started to really quantify the training that I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to create a distinction between exercise and training. If I want to exercise, well, I'm going to go and sweat and feel good and, uh, get some work done, go, go get in a quote unquote workout. Um, but it's mostly for, for me to feel good and uh, for, for me to, to move my body. If I'm going to train, it's going to be in alignment with the goal. I'm trying to achieve something. There's, there's a margin of error that I should be caring about if I'm training versus exercising. And I started to realize, oh, fitness is this fad driven industry precisely because We've got lots of exercisers who like to try new things and, you know, gradually, uh, you know, get very bored of the new things and need new things. But, it, but it's a very fad-driven industry, I think, because it's not personalized. Mm. It's, it, it's, if, if I create a program that works for everybody, then it, it kind of works for nobody because there's no personalization for you specifically and your unique goals or me specifically and my unique goals. And so it really hit me that if you could deliver technology that can provide personalized coaching, personalized training advice for some niche segment, well, that could be a complete game changer. That, that could start with some narrow sliver of a market Mm -hmm. but as it matures could, could reach a much broader market. Right. And that, that was when it, I was really able to put the pieces together and say, okay, I'm here doing CrossFit. It's a very data driven, um, uh, very, very, lots of variables involved. You know, there's weightlifting, there's gymnastics, there's monostructural endurance. There's, it, it's sort of training for the unknown and the unknowable as they say, mm -hmm. So it's a very multifaceted problem, but it's a very data-driven problem, and there's a lot of good doctrine around uh, the ways that they've gone about quantifying fitness and how you measure that. And when I was able to cast that as a machine learning problem, as a problem that with users could produce data, with data could produce AI, and then with that, there could be this real value for a group of people that have mm. fitness as a lifestyle. Well, that that's, you know, it took a while to put those pieces together the way I just described it. 
but you know, that's really where it all came into focus for me. And I was able to say, okay, there, there is a way to take everything that I've learned up to this point and project it into a particular market with a particular set of problems uh, because that market has not been well served by this kind of technology yet. This market's been overserved by maybe video on demand mm -hmm. or let me sell you another workout program because it's my workout program and, and right. you should believe me this time because I want to race or I'm the world champion in something but that doesn't translate uh, very well to an arbitrary person. Right. You know, in CrossFit, what works for Rich Froning or Matt Fraser, uh, I, I would be crippled if they gave me their training program and, and I tried to do it for more than a couple of days. You know, I, I need something that's going to be tailored to my skill level, uh, my experience level, my mobility level, plus my goals. Um, I may not have the goal to be the fittest man on earth. Um, well, they obviously do, and, and they've done that. You know, my goal may be a little bit more skewed in one direction or another. And, and that's the thing with the personalization, right? That, that's why I'm, I'm very excited about technology and what it can do in fitness, because I think the more personalized the experience can be for the consumer, we're back to like, well, why would they, why would they buy a product or why would they use a product? Well, in this space, I think it's because it, it will serve them well. And if fitness is their hobby or fitness is their lifestyle, it's more of a, I, I want to spend more money on this digital product because I buy the new shoes and I buy the, you know, the latest apparel and I pay for, you know, the personal coach every once in a while. I, I spend lots of discretionary income on fitness because it's it's more than a hobby it's my lifestyle it's mm -hmm. it's what i wake up in the morning and oh what is the first thing i think about one of the things is training it's like okay well how am i going to train today what am i going to do today right yeah you know this the thing you mentioned is I, I talked about this with other guests i talked about this on my other show where i just talk about running and can teach people about running it's the the idea that people like to hone in on the pros, right? Or the top of the sport, whoever that is, whether we're talking about pros, not pros, doesn't matter. And say, well, I'll just do whatever they're doing. Like, okay, well, you're missing so many things. As you mentioned, like the, the personalization factors, um, which include among other things, the entire history of their fitness leading up to that point that you may not have. So it's, it's funny that like, People want to focus in on that, but it's the completely wrong thing to do because it has nothing to do with what you specifically need to do for your specific goals. So um, thinking about the AI in particular, I know I've spoken with uh, several people recently even. Uh, Matt Jordan comes to mind. He works at the uh, Canadian Institute of Sport. Is that right? It's the, the, the basically Canadian uh, Olympic Training Center. I can't remember the, the actual name of it at the moment in Calgary. Um, and so several people who are kind of in a more academic role trying to figure out how to quantify and track all these points of training, training load, um, quantifying fatigue, all these kind of things. And then there's obviously um, companies like yours, you know, a number of other kind of fitness trackers 
who are also working on this problem. Um, I can't remember whether it was Matt or another guest, so I don't want to put words in anybody's mouth, but somebody had mentioned um, that they don't understand how AI companies are doing this because they don't believe academics even have this figured out at this point. So for you approaching this problem, is it a matter of if we can throw enough data into our bucket, see what patterns come out, then you can predict or, or how do you approach that problem? Yeah. So, so I think you have to like so many things. Um, it's like I was telling a friend yesterday, uh, everything that you think is easy in life, you only think that because somebody else has been good enough at their job to make it look that way. When you actually have to do it yourself and you peel back the layers, you realize nothing is easy in life. All those things you took for granted as being easy, those people doing those jobs were just very competent or good enough to make it look that way for you. Mm -hmm. And so with AI, if we're only listening to what certain people say about AI and they're only talking about the things that are working um, or the things that aren't working, you know, there's this bias that, right. that similar kind of bias. So I think uh, to peel back those layers, you have to, you have to unwind it and you have to say, well, there is no AI without data and there is no data without users that produce the data unless mm -hmm. you can find a really good way to synthetically create it. Sometimes you can. Um, and there are no users unless you have a valuable enough tool or product that delivers enough value that they'll even use it in the first place. So if I have something of value to provide a user that solves a real problem, uh, in a way that has a cost structure that can let me stay in business, then I can try to siphon off the data exhaust that has a real accretive value. Mm -hmm. And as that data exhaust accrues, I can build analytics that increasingly become more and more sophisticated. And at some point you hope that you have a bit of a data moat and a critical mass of data mm -hmm. that really puts you in a category uh, of your own, but you, you know, you don't just do this overnight. It's, uh, you know, I, I, I don't like the metaphor that life is, is a marathon. I know that it is, but my mentality is to, to approach the marathon as a series of, you know, hundred meter sprints. You know, I, okay. I want to, I want to move quickly. I want to be in a hurry about everything I do, but there's a part of me that also uh, just understands, you know, you can plant a seed and you can give it the perfect lighting and the perfect water and the perfect environmental conditions but it's still going to take some period of time for that particular seed to sprout and, you know, grow into a tomato or a, you know, husk of corn or, or whatever it is. Um, you know, you can put the cake in the oven and triple the heat, but you can't cook the cake three times faster by tripling the heat. Right. Right. You know, three women can't make a baby uh, three times faster. Right. There's some things, some cycles in life that just take time. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think when you're thinking about building an AI product, you should not underestimate that, that, that it is a bit of a long game, whether you want it to be or not. Now, you, you, you should always look for shortcuts. You should always look for ways to use money to get back time. Um, you, know, you have capital decisions you have to make uh, all along the way. 
with, with enough time and money though, you should be able to do it, but timing mm -hmm. does matter, right? If, um, if you're right, but you're not on time, you're wrong in business. Right. Timing matters. Yeah. So thinking about the way you kind of laid out that, that development cycle, how do you get, you know, your, your greatest amount of efficacy with a platform or an AI, as I understand you having explained it to me, so correct me, please, uh, is once you already have that big conglomeration of data, right? So what do you offer like early adopters, which for you listening is the people that start on before something's really much of a thing, you know, what do you offer early adopters to get them in? So you get momentum in the beginning when you don't have that big moat of data that you're looking to have, you know, downstream. Yeah. So it's, it's, you know, it, it obviously uh, varies by product. Mm -hmm. So what you're really looking for, you know, I think in, in business terms is you're looking for your unique value proposition. Right. You, you need something so if, if you're looking at a market, I was, I was telling, telling a colleague, if you're looking at a market and you say, wow, I'm in such a crowded market, to me, that's just a hint that you don't really know what your unique value proposition is. You mm -hmm. haven't found the right competitive matrix to put yourself in because if, if you really have a unique value proposition, then by definition, you should be in a subset of a market that is not really crowded because right. if it's unique, right? You have some distance between you and some of your competitors. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you're just trying to uh, sort of compete with, with everybody on every feature or level up to, to get to some point, yeah, it's going to seem really crowded and, and really difficult. And how do you find a unique value proposition? Well, I mean, it's, it's a combination of things, I think there is some intuition about it. You want to have good founder market fit. If you're uh, starting a company, you're trying to build a product, you, you, I think you do want to scratch your own itch because uh, that domain knowledge is, is critical. You mm -hmm. can't just really outsource that, I don't think. Um, you know, I think you also uh, have to consider, uh, yeah, who is out there? What, what is their messaging? How are they projecting themselves? You obviously do some market research and, uh, try to be analytical about it. But then, you know, there's marketing, which is what a company says about itself. And then there's just the consumer review, which mm -hmm. could be very different, right? You can project any message you want about your product on a website, but what do the reviews say? And mm -hmm. what do the people who use it say? And, and what do they say uh, that they would like more of or less of? Or where, does, where, where is it strong? Where does it fall short? Right, so you can do that, but you can also build a functional prototype of your own product that's, mm -hmm. you know, conceptually smoke and mirrors. But but if it can provide a user experience, you can interview a consumer, right? And just uh, there's some best practices and techniques here, right? For um, hey, would you would you uh, spend five minutes and try to use this and let me watch you, and hey, great, what did you think of that? Mm -hmm. um, how much would you be willing to pay for that? You know, what, where did it fall short, right? So I think there, that's sort of a top-down approach, but I think that's a, that's a very market-driven approach, and, you know, I think it's a very messy process, but, um, you know, no one, no one ever said building a business um, was easy, right? It's, I think right. it, 
on a secular level, I think it is the ultimate multi-objective optimization problem in life. Like, I don't know of anything that's harder than building something out of nothing. Mm. It's, it's just the hardest thing. You said a few things that it kind of want to touch on. You talked about your unique value proposition and think about there's, it's the difference. So for you listening, Matthew and I are both entrepreneurs. So there's a lot of jargon here. Um, it's basically what makes you different from some, everybody else. And there's, there's the idea of on a most mundane level. So like, say, you know, iPhone came out and then there are a bunch of like clones, Chinese clones of iPhones. I'm saying Chinese just as a broad term. I'm sure there were other, you know, countries and producers of clones of iPhones. It's a me too product. There's nothing unique about that thing. They're trying to copy the exact same thing. But then in some sense, you could say like Samsung's Galaxy phone series. It's not a me too. It's in a same or similar space, but it offers different features. It's a different software. You know, it offers different things. So that's kind of what the unique value proposition is. But then there's, there's a deeper way to go there where I'm sure, Matthew, you've heard this, the blue ocean strategy where you're trying to create a new sub niche where nobody else is. So you no longer have competition, but the, the thing you said that kind of struck a chord with me more. And I, for any budding entrepreneur, I often touch on this is the founder market fit, right? That's why like, I have no business building a software as a service company. I just, my coding skills are basic at best. I wouldn't even know how to verify that like my coders are doing the appropriate thing. So I don't have good founder market fit for like the kind of things that you do. And I think that can't be understated because that's so, although I often say follow your passion is a bad way to build a business. It is important in the essence that, as you mentioned, you have some knowledge about the market you're serving. Otherwise you're going in cold and you're going to miss. There's so many things you don't know that you don't know about that market. Yeah, that's, that's right. It, uh, there's, yeah, there, there, there are the things, you know, and, uh, you know, they're going to be hard Mm -hmm. and, and you've experienced them. And then there, you, you know about some things, right? Like these known unknowns, right? right? You know that there are some gaps in your own knowledge and you know there's a marketing function. Uh, you don't really know how hard it's going to be to, to think about all of the different aspects of, of what may be involved. Like if you're me coming from a product background, well, I, I know that, I've been there, I've done that, I kind of know that's hard. Well, marketing, uh, B2C marketing, well, I know that's going to be hard, but I don't really know just how hard it's going to be, but I'm Mm. going to put a placeholder there for it. And then there's the unknown unknowns, the blind spots, which by definition, you can't find a blind spot on your own. That's why it's a blind spot. You either literally have to have another person pointed out to you or you have to to run into into it the hard way. (laughs) Yeah. hundred percent. You know, so, uh, but, but in all of that with, you know, I think the most important thing about founder market fit is that, building a business from scratch is it's so hard that if you just don't love it on, on some level, if you wouldn't spend the time staying up late, getting up early, you know, 
letting go of a 40 or 50 hour a week job for a 70 or 80 hour a week job where you probably get paid a lot less, at least in the early days. Mm -hmm. Like uh, if you just don't love it and aren't delighted to be doing it, like you, you just won't do that for very long. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's a certain, it's like I, I, on some level, I think I have an award-winning tolerance for pain when I look at my own life and uh, the grit in, in a lot of situations. I mean, it takes that to build any early stage business, I think. There, there's some level of um, wanting to endure it because even though it's that difficult, there's a real satisfaction that comes just from being able to do it and know that you're doing it and know that you're doing a good job. And, uh, and even though the progress may be slow at times, having the faith and uh, just sort of the knowing that, yeah, the vision may never be fully realized, but you are at least approaching the vision. You're making progress. It's, it's a little closer than it used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you don't have founder market fit for a startup, I don't know how you ever work through that. Um, just it's, it's, it's impossible for me to conceive. See, and it's interesting because I know like, so one of, um, I wouldn't say he's a mentor, but he's definitely in the space. I attend like his e-commerce conference, Steve Chu, um, his, he, he and his wife, he, he comes from a software, but well, I tend I think it's technically hardware. He, um, helped design computer chips, I think at Intel, but I could be wrong. So sorry, sorry, Steve, if I've got that wrong, but, um, so he came from a technology background and him and his wife started a online store selling handkerchiefs of all things. He didn't know much about handkerchiefs, um, but he found himself becoming obsessive about it and finding a passion in serving that market. I think that's really, at least as far as I know, the only way around it is that your your passion for serving people supersedes your current knowledge and interest in the topic itself. And yeah, that think, has limits, but I think that's the only way you get around it. Yeah, I think that's that's an interesting angle, and you know, I think there, there's another angle in between, which is. It's, you know, if I go back to writing books, it's like, mm-hmm. well, the first book you write, uh, you don't know what you're doing and you figure it out and you underestimated a whole bunch of things, right. but then you build up a tool chain and the second book, well, you've got a process and there's a structure that follows a strategy and it's a little more efficient and you, you do it a couple more times and eventually you, you, you sort of see how you could become a publisher if, if that were your goal in life. Mm-hmm. You know, you've, you've sort of built the tool chain, the process. Uh, you could imagine what the business model is and so on. And I think with businesses, you know, it, it's, it's sort of the same thing. I think if, if you make it through the whole process and you build a successful business, there's, there's this benefit you have in the survivorship bias of having figured out one way to, to solve a very complex problem, you've learned a lot of things, right? I love this quote, um, some, I'll paraphrase, but uh, you know, the, the quote is something to the effect of, um, you know, the young man knows the rules to the game, but, but the, the older man knows the exceptions, mm-hmm. right? So you, you've learned uh, 
all of the different ways that, you know, you can, you know, cut yourself on the sharp edges and, you know, the, the, the prickly parts of it that, uh, that, that, it, that, that hurt you or that were more difficult than you, you expected, mm-hmm. but you make it through. And once you make it through, I think you either, at least the way I think about it, you either say, wow, that, that was great. And I never want to do that again, but I'm glad it was a success. Or you say, wow, I'm going to take everything I just learned and benefit from that experience and do it again. Mm-hmm. And there's sort of a compounding interest on that. So I think the reason you hear about a quote unquote serial entrepreneur is because if you're the kind of person that, you know, has a, you know, a certain tolerance for pain and a certain kind of passion you like to follow and you've cracked the code once or twice, I see how that you, you could take that pattern and systematically apply it. So if you start with computer chips but you know how to manage and operate a company. I totally get how you could start selling handkerchiefs, you know, as mm-hmm. an e-commerce business. Um, if you love the process and if you love like business, you know, as a broad category versus only software or only hard goods or right. only, you know, services and consulting work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Matthew, as we're starting to wind down on time, uh, there's a question I'm asking everybody this season because it really transcends any particular discipline. The question I'm asking everybody I'd like to know from you is what do you think the purpose of sport is? Yeah, I think the purpose of sport, um, you know, uh, maximizing human potential is is sort of the first thing that comes to mind Mm -hmm. you know that's something i've thought a lot about and you know if you think of of if you think of any contest you know whether it's a you know a little group of kids on a field that barely know how to kick the ball or you know a group of uh, very highly paid professional best in the world athletes you know competing in some way you know, I, I think on some level, the participants are trying to maximize their own human potential. They're trying to play the best game they can on any given day. And I think if you're a spectator, that's, that's also what you're looking for on some level. You're, mm-hmm. you're looking for people to play a good game. And in theory, if both sides are giving their best effort and have maximized their human potential, um, you know, it should be a fair outcome based mm-hmm. on you know, the conditions of the day. And there's something about the uncertainty of knowing how that match will work out or how that race will end that, uh, um, that, that is just purely entertaining and fascinating because you start to wonder, uh, you know, well, what makes these people tick and could I ever do that? And what would it take to be able to do that, right? Mm-hmm. What do these people put themselves through, right? So I think it just sort of leads to this state of wonder and fascination. Uh, but that's the best answer, you know, I, I think I have. Like, um, I think the side effects are it brings people together. And, uh, you know, it, there's a lot of learning and sort of a lot of, there's, there's a lot of benefits to it. But, but if I think of, you know, why do the people themselves engage in sport? 
I, I don't know if I've met anyone that would say something too different from, I want to be the best I can be. I want to want to give my best effort. I want to leave it all out on the field. Right. That sounds a lot like maximizing human potential. Right. And then if there's a whole industry involved in watching it go down, I think that's what you're looking for. Mm -hmm. Matthew, if uh, people want to kind of, follow your, your SaaS companies, see what you're up to, see about new books, any of that kind of stuff. Where can they find you? Yeah. Um, the, the best, the best way to find me, uh, would be, um, I, I, I don't spend a lot of time on social media right now. Uh, but, but all of my social media accounts uh, are out there and I, I keep an eye on them from time to time. Uh, my companies you know, I would say uh, would, would be a couple things to check out. So throwdowns.com, uh, we have a uh, fitness competitions platform that's pretty holistic end-to-end, -end, uh, really designed for some of the unique needs of functional fitness, sports like CrossFit, uh, but, but more broadly, you know, we can support a lot of different sports. Um, and then our new mobile wearable app, Strongest, uh, will be available in the App Store later this quarter. So you can go to strongest.ai. Uh, we have a, a list you can sign up for to get early access, be a beta tester while we iron out some more of the experience. And um, yeah, other than those two places, uh, I, I would say um, this, this podcast episode was great and um, you probably learned a lot about me uh, just here if, uh, if you listen to this the whole way through. So this has been a, a lot of fun and Appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. Yeah, absolutely. And so for, you know, for you, if you are interested in CrossFit functional fitness and for some reason you're organizing, when I was looking through, um, you know, Matthew's uh, company throwdowns, like it, it looks like very robust software. I come from a running background. So I think about, you know, the software solutions for running races or triathlons. And there are a lot of, nice technology needs that you need behind the scenes to make a race go smooth for a race director. It, the same thing is going to apply for, you know, functional fitness and keeping everything running smoothly. Um, so if that's your field, definitely check that out because I, I think as Matthew mentioned earlier, things only look simple when everybody else has done their job to make it look simple. And that's kind of what Matthew and that company is trying to accomplish. So Matthew, thanks for hanging out with me today. Uh, I hope you have a great weekend. Thanks. Have a great weekend.